0: Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Hi, Deborah Hamilton. Today's podcast is with Dr. Peter Weinstein. He's a really good friend, but... An incredible thinker and rethinker of how to develop veterinary practices that work with pet owners and how veterinary teams and pet owners can work together. There's the collaboration point, there's the open discussion point, there's the education point, there's the respectful listening point. It is an incredible podcast you will not want to miss. And I'm sure that Peter and I will have many of these discussions going forward because we together are working on building a relationship between veterinarians, veterinarian teams that include the client as a part of that team. So let's listen to what Peter has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton. And I'm so glad to have my good friend, Dr. Peter Weinstein here today. He has had so many roles in the veterinary field that really I would be here for the full 30 minutes, explaining them and and running them off. So Peter was kind enough to say just many roles. And he really wants to help everyone on both sides of the aisle, rethink the practice of veterinary medicine and really influence how the next generation of veterinarians are brought up in this practice. So Peter, thank you so much for being here. I'm so grateful to you to give us some time because you are so busy.
1: Thank you, Deborah. I am honored to be here and and thrilled to have been invited to to be a part of your podcast family.
0: Thank you so much. So we always ask our guests one question and one question alone, and then we ramble down the road. Uh, The first question is, Peter, why do pets matter to you?
1: I find my pets and the pets that I've cared for to be a replacement for Prozac. They are a natural relaxation device. Um, Some of them actually perform massage as they run all over you and walk up and down. So I I think pets provide a natural um, resource for all of us to, uh, you know, just kind of chill and and, um, get the daily stressors. So I, 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 I guess that we should be prescribing pills instead of Prozac.
0: Yes, prescribing pets instead of Prozac is absolutely- Yes, instead of
1: pets instead of Prozac, not pills it's, instead of Prozac.
0: So. Yeah, it, it's fabulous. You're the, you know, this is such an organic way to deal with the stress and strain that we've all been under. So let me ask you, Peter, in your experience, you wanted me to introduce you, and I know it's true, you want to rethink um, the roles of veterinarians in the practice of veterinary medicine. Let, let's chat about what are some of the ideas. I know you wrote a great article um, for today's vet. It was a retroscope. And in it, you spoke about how sometimes the um, lack of communication might be something that is needs work. Um, so tell us a little bit more because I think that if you want to rethink veterinary medicine, maybe communication is one place to start.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, if I were to ask were to be asked, uh, what do I feel some of the weaknesses are in the veterinary profession globally? That's everybody, both the veterinarians and all the um, stakeholders. I would suggest that we have we we have a lack of of strong leaders within the profession. Um, We have poor communication that is at all levels and and most significantly within veterinary practices. And I think we don't take the time to educate ourselves. And I don't think we have taken the time to educate the stakeholders that are not intimately involved with the profession, aka pet, ho- pet owners, about all of the different things that the veterinary profession does. So when it comes to communication, it, it is definitely impacts our daily practices, and it impacts the perception that pet owners have of us, not just pet owners, but all animal owners have of us, because we really aren't always clear in our messaging.
0: It's- It's sort of like um, what I'm hearing you say is that communication should be as organic as the communication between you and your pets. You should be able to figure a way and put in some procedures that are flexible that will allow you to communicate with your team, um, your colleagues and your pet owners, the pets owners who bring them in, in a way that brings everybody together.
1: Well, I I think, I would love to think of it as proactive communication. I think notoriously, and speaking personally from being in practice as a a hospital owner, I think we are a very reactive profession. I, I think if we were to be able to advise Deborah Hamilton pet owner, what your needs are for today's visit, what to expect on subsequent visits, and what to expect throughout the life of your pet, We can avoid some of the the shock that's that's the emotional shock, but we might be able to also address sticker shock that comes associated therewith. I also think that as a profession, we have failed to self-promote. I, I think that many pet owners, many animal owners aren't fully aware of the skills that their veterinary healthcare providers offer. And so when we talk about simple things like radiographs or lab work, um, or the fact that pets get cancer, in many cases, it comes as a surprise. So I really do think that more open, proactive communication so that everybody understands what the playing field looks like will be much better for all uh, involved and all stakeholders. And that includes our teams and and the clients and and industry and associations and most importantly, students.
0: Peter, what do you think thwarts Uh, practitioners, and maybe even their staff, and maybe even pet owners from asking questions that would give them that ability to learn more before they are faced with the surprise?
1: A couple of things. Number one, I don't necessarily blame the pet owners for not knowing what questions to ask, because they don't always ask the right questions when they go and adopt a pet or purchase a pet or whatever the source may be. Too often it's an impulse. Because I don't think we, as parents, always know what questions to ask the pediatrician when we bring our kids in. So from a veterinarian standpoint, not to make excuses for my colleagues, because I'm guilty of it as well, I don't think we have time. And I also don't think that we think in that fashion. In other words, I'm a systems thinker. So if we have a systems and system in place, on each visit, that were to include a discussion of of today's needs, the next visit's needs, and when those would be addressed, and also continue to educate about future needs. I, I know you have Irish setters. Um, we could talk about all sorts of problems that Irish setters may develop down the road, most of which are self-inflicted. Um, but uh, I think it's a question of integrating it into our normal conversations, And this is why I'm such a big advocate of of team-based healthcare delivery, where we utilize our team to do a lot of the education, which is what happens in other healthcare fields, instead of being so doctor-centric. I think we can provide our team with the education and knowledge to have a conversation with Deborah Hamilton about the next visit getting it scheduled even addressing some of the issues on today's visit but we need to create a more team-centric delivery model and less doctor-centric delivery model and make Deborah have a, a concierge within the practice or a case manager within the practice that isn't necessarily a doctor that was a lot of talk there but I think you got my point
0: Oh, no, I got your point. I made so many notes because to me, this is so important. And the first piece, I think, of shifting vet practices to a more team-based because they weren't really team-based in the past. You always just spoke to the vet, which took up a lot of the vet's time, which made it very stressful. Now they're trying to shift to a more team-based. However, I think, and I might be wrong, and you will correct me if I am, I don't know that they spend enough time on the education of their team to have their teams be believable by pet owners. And I don't think veterinarians spend enough team uh, enough time explaining their team and their expertise in the team to the pet owner so the pet owner knows and trusts the team concept. Because as I said um, earlier, when we were chatting before we got on, uh, one of the team members is often left left off of that discussion,
1: the client. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, staff meetings in the eyes of most veterinarians are a loss of income rather than an opportunity to educate. And most staff meetings are an opportunity to publicly embarrass staff members for the mistakes that they made instead of an opportunity to be a teacher and utilize the staff meeting to educate, uh, excuse me, staff members about common presentations, wellness, dental disease, obesity. I mean, your team should be your teachers. And to do so, they need to all have the same messaging. So everybody should be on the same page. And that includes new hires. And so we don't routinely take the time to educate and train in a formal fashion to ensure that we're all singing from the same page of the music sheets, which is why way too many practices don't sound like music, but they sound like cacophony.
0: You know, I love that you say that because Sometimes some of the best ideas come from clients who've experienced something and can share that with a veterinarian, and the veterinarian didn't even know. Uh, On a call I was on last night, uh, somebody pointed out to the vet that they left the dog in the crate for 14 hours overnight, and you know it didn't go to the bathroom. And was that an ethical issue? And the guy goes, "Wow, I didn't even think of that." So when you have these standing operating procedures, that's fabulous. But if somebody comes up with a comment and you went right to it because you said, you know, it's a loss of income, let's get it over fast. Nobody feels safe to talk because if they talk, they might be embarrassed or fired. And so you're not getting that really um, grounds, you know, organic boots on the ground comment from your staff that says, you know, when Mrs. Hamilton was here, she she suggested this. And I think it's a great idea. What do you think? Uh, I know when I speak, there are a lot of times when um, vet, management groups say well we'd love to have you come in and like you said having me come in to talk would be a loss of income and yet it would build that base on which as you said that common language that common discussion that common idea of here's your your appointment today here's the appointment that's going to come up and this is what we want you to look for mrs hamilton and irish setters going forward it just makes sense but yet it doesn't seem to have gotten into the DNA of uh, the practice of veterinary medicine. And what do you think is keeping that from
1: happening? I think we've been, we've been just, the the last two years we've been busy being busy. Prior to that, we were busy surviving the day. We, again, way too many practices have no vision. They have, they their goal is to get done. But their goal isn't to prepare for tomorrow, or a week from tomorrow, or a month from tomorrow. So I, I think it's really having a formal education schedule. I would also suggest that since we do have a relatively high turnover, relatively is probably being generous, we have a high turnover in the veterinary profession, that recording these education sessions and creating a learning library for new hires, now all of a sudden make sure that we're not using the game of telephone to educate and that everybody is speaking again from the same playbook, we need a playbook and we don't have one. And and so I, I jest that we are living in Groundhog's Day, the movie, instead of moving forward and trying to set The parameters going forward from that standpoint. Part Uh, of the. Go ahead. Sorry. Part of the challenge we do have is the um, diversity of our employees, the diversity of our clients, the different levels of knowledge and education of our employees. And if we were to put together a matrix of five generations of employees and five generations of clients, it would look like the matrix, the movie um, in trying to get, which pill is that you take the red one or the blue one. So I think that's kind of what we're dealing with is is we've got so much, so many moving parts, more moving parts than any other healthcare provider. And what we need to do as a profession, this is where my disruptor hat comes in. We need to slow down. We need to stop trying to be everything to everybody. And we need to choose where in the marketplace we want to be, the level of care we want to provide, the relationships that we want to have with clients. And if you want to be simply transactional and Deborah Hamilton comes in once and you don't care if you ever see her again, that's just fine if Deborah wants that type of practice. Or we should have a relationship-based practice where everybody knows about Deborah, her kids, her family, what they're up to. And you can have a conversation that has nothing to do with her crazy Irish setters and everything to do with you know, how's life on the farm. Yeah. So I, I think we have to start to maybe segment small animal clinical medicine in the, in the same way that you've got racetrack vets and you've got backyard horse vets and you've got um, large dairy farm vets and you've got small dairy farm vets. I mean, we really have to start to figure out where we fit and stop trying to be everything to everybody. I think that's what, that's part of what exhausts us as well.
0: Yeah, the jack of all trades really has uh, come under a bit of an attack in veterinary medicine, and I've seen a huge spike in specialties, which has its own sense of um, needing of disruption as well, because yes, I'm going to send you off to a kidney specialist, or I'm going to send you off to a gastroenterologist specialist because Irish setters bloat, right? And we're going to do a PEXI or whatever. These are the kind of things you really need to explain to your client. If you're there, say GP, and you're going to send them off to Peter, because he really does great PEXIs. And that's why, you know, I'm going to send you there. And then Peter has to have that collaborative conversation with vet A and the client so that there's a smooth transition, but that often doesn't doesn't happen I think maybe using your language again because it's it's not a time maker it's a it's not a money maker it's a money loser because it's time
1: yeah but time is money and time is relationships and and if
0: I think relationship much more than money because you're the money will come if the relationship is built at least that's what I have found
1: yeah no absolutely and and why we don't why we don't get on a a three-way telephone conversation with the generalist, the specialist, and the pet owner um, to help create comfort in that transfer of of the relationship. Um, Again, it's just, uh, we have lots of excuses and I'm not sure that they're all valid, but they are in the perception of the person who has the excuse as we all know. So I think it's just recognizing what value proposition you wanna deliver and sticking to it and not changing every client. You know, if every client is a different value proposition, all you've done is create um, confusion for the clients, for the staff. So I I think a lot of it is is maybe um, just sitting down and and, and as a profession, figuring out what direction we're gonna head and working on more collaboration. I, I had this conversation with somebody else the other day about collaboration versus competition. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we have plenty of business. We don't need to worry about having every client. We just need to take great care of our best clients and they will take care of us. But when you try to make everybody happy, you make nobody happy.
0: You know, I I love that you pointed that out on an earlier podcast. Um, It was pointed out that there's a, an app you can have for your phone uh, that you can take your vet records with you so that if your dog gets sick out of town, you can have the vet records with you to hand to the emergency vet. However, a lot of vets don't want to allow that because they think if they hold the client's records, they hold the client. And if that's how you're holding onto your client, that sort of flies in the face with um, building a value-based, you know relationship-based practice. Uh, because people are going to value the fact that Dr. Weinstein allows them to take their records with them in in the event that Fluffy gets sick in California and the doc is in New York, right? So these kinds of ideas, I love it. Uh, The creation of comfort. So the animals, we started here. So the animals create organic comfort for us. You know, they, they make our lives so whole. And I think that what you're, sharing and the disruption you're trying to create is to remind veterinarians of that and to understand that that's where the client the pet owner is coming in and how are we going to use that to really facilitate and put together a relationship that's going to serve everybody and everybody's well-being
1: yeah the human animal bond and all its related offshoots and names is really why we exist at this stage it, it was a completely different world 200 years 60s, ago right yeah. no in
0: the 60s like 50 years ago it was right. much different it shifted sort of like in the 80s i think
1: i, I like to jest that it shifted when when we came up with uh, flea control that didn't include bombs and other <laughs> nuclear waste and um when the program came out in 1994 i believe and we had a pill that controlled fleas, pets could actually sleep on the bed, which meant that the significant other slept on the floor, but that's a different discussion. That's a
0: whole different discussion. I'll have you back to talk about that.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think when pets moved into the house, um, the relationship changed, the importance and the value of the veterinary profession in companion animal medicine changed and um, the value of pets to people Changed. I mean, cats were pets in the '60s. I grew up with cats. Um, we didn't know half the stuff we knew now. Back then, and, and it's amazing what we continue to learn all the time. And all of the different diagnostic tests that we have, that and the the ability to provide a long, quality life, pain free, etc. It's in, I think it's imperative for. Um, veterinarians to educate, but I also, I'm going to go back to the pet owner and even, you know, food animal owners, et cetera, to not be afraid to ask questions. I think that if your veterinary healthcare team doesn't encourage you to ask questions, then I think I might look for another veterinarian. I really think that if you are not part of the conversation. If it's a unilateral delivery of services, that's not what healthcare is about. Healthcare is a team-based situation and the client is part of that team.
0: And one of the biggest parts, because they're observing the dog every day. And now with COVID, everybody was home observing their dog and their dog might've been exactly the same as it was. However, they were home to see it. Uh, And that brought on more anxiety and worry because they wanted to make sure they could get in and then they couldn't get in. Um, And then of course, Peter, there's that big question. I've had it several times on um, webinars that I've given live, thank God, where people actually ask questions. But some veterinarians get really frustrated when clients come in with information from Dr. Google. And they always ask me, you know, what do you do when they do that? So I'm going to ask you, Peter, what do you do? And then I'll tell you what I do.
1: I came in with 283 pages from Dr. Google. I would thank them. And I would say... You know, I fully appreciate your concerns and the due diligence and the research that you did. It's going to save me having to do the same research. Now, let's talk about some of the things that are in this pile of information and what might be relevant in where I live in Southern California. That's different than what might be in uh, Saudi Arabia or Russia. Maybe I shouldn't say Russia right now, but, you know, it's there are certain diseases that we are more likely to see, which I would call horses in Southern California. Right. 83% of what you brought me are zebras. Okay, let's look at the horses first. So that means I can get rid of nine, 83% of the pages that are here and look at the most common things that are likely. Now, and, and that's how I would approach it. I would thank them, I would validate their concerns, and then I would work through the papers there and get to the point that says, "Here's the one thing that that makes sense in all of us. Let's do some tests. All right? The tests will validate what we're talking about. And you know there are a lot of tests that are suggested that we can do if you'd like to, but let's be um, let's be logical and pragmatic in our decision making. And we can go on and do more tests if necessary. But I, I think, um, I don't think we should be, I think we shouldn't be upset when they come in with Dr. Google. I think we should learn from it, and this is what we should learn. We should learn how to better educate our clients so they come to us with those questions. Go to our website with those questions. Call your case manager and concierge in the practice with those questions. We need to out-Google Dr. Google.
0: Oh, I I totally agree. So I always tell people to thank them as well, because listen, it's all they can do because they have to wait maybe a week to see you and they think their dog or cat or bird or horse is dying. And so all they can do is get on the internet and and Google about whatever they're observing. And I always tell people, put your ego in your pocket. You know, it's not, they're not challenging your knowledge on what this might be for their animal. They are trying to assuage their fear um, and their worry as they wait to see you and trying to give you a leg up. And you said the perfect word, which I say all the time. Thank you, I so appreciate you taking this time because as you said, you might have 95 zebras here but those five horses might actually make a lot of sense. And you're right, I don't have to look for them right now and they may work, they may not work but I wanna really thank you for taking the time to do this. And I also wanna thank you for saying and they should maybe call their concierge person if they knew they existed which you and I both know 75% of the time even practices that are trying to do team medicine don't explain it so well to their clients. And so, although when they're there, they know that there are four people who come in the room, but when they're not there, they don't know that they might have access to those four people. What do you think practices should do to facilitate educating the client to use the entire team? I think
1: that they could make their website a learning website. And and I think they should even consider making a um, uh, a YouTube channel with short one or two minute videos that they could send a link out in an email every two weeks or so. I, I think we should be touching our clients, metaphorically, don't get me wrong. I think we should be, t- I've got an attorney across the screen for me, but. Uh, <laughs> I think we should be reaching out to our clients more often um, and and staying in front of them. By the way, I have to give you credit for the use of a SAT word, um, eswage, which I haven't heard in like 40 years. So um, I think that's the word of the day. So look look it up, people.
0: It's, it is the word of the day. I love that word. Uh, you know, for me, it's, it's you know, personally, I've left a vet of 25 years to move to North Carolina and have been interviewing vets here in North Carolina. And it's, it's amazing to me, being a practitioner of what I'm doing, to see the need for um, a little more of what you're talking about, a little more about collaboration, a little less about, being the smartest person in the room. I mean, I already know, Peter, you're the smartest person in the room when it comes to anything having to do with the health of my pet. And I want you to give me at least a little credit as the pet owner that I know about Junie. And sometimes that gets lost in translation.
1: I think healthcare providers, and I'm gonna say this in a global fashion, are way too defensive And maybe that's a confidence issue, maybe that's the God complex, goes back to that movie with uh, the doctor or something like that, when the doctor ended up being the patient. Um, I think, uh, I don't think we need to be defensive. If you're confident in your skills and knowledge, then you have the ability to say thank you without saying how ignorant the person across from you is and make them feel good about their ignorance, for lack of a better way of putting things. One of the books that I think every veterinarian should read is Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I use that every day in everything that I do. I think um, if I were to look at a turning point in the veterinary profession in many ways, it was the economic challenges of 2008 to 2012 thereabouts. Yep. Just before then, Pet owners who had money would come in and and if they trusted you, it really was an open credit card. And you would tell the client what their pet needed and they would say, sure, go ahead. When things got really tight and people's 401ks became a 200.5k, then everything got a little bit more let's do some research on it first. And so pets were being brought in later, Uh, the the nature of care was being questioned and it made for an even more defensive business model. In my opinion, it is our job now, and it has been since 2008, not to just tell Deborah Hamilton what her dogs need, but to explain why they need those services so that Deborah can make an educated decision in conjunction with the veterinary team as to what's best for her dogs. We have to move from just the what discussion to the what and the why discussion because Deborah wants to know why, because Deborah's worried about the dollars and cents that goes along with the what. But if you can validate the what with the why, all of a sudden the discussion becomes much easier when she realizes that that lab work will identify certain diseases and maybe we don't need to take radiographs right now and here's why we can wait on those, et cetera. um,
0: That's so perfect, Peter, because I often say to veterinarians, I go, you know, you have to have that money talk. Um, You have to let them know why and you have to listen to them on what it is they want pet owners, what it is they understand you mean by what you're saying Um, and often I know that veterinarians want to move quickly. Often it might take 24 hours for someone to go home with information and read it, unless the dog's an extremist, of course, and that's a whole different story, but most people do just put their credit card down if their dog is an extremist, but say, you've just been diagnosed with kidney failure. Well, what's that next step? What can we do? Well, there's this road and this road and this road, and then I think what I hear you saying, which is really important, have that conversation with the team and make sure the team doesn't shame or blame anybody. You know, you're trying to charge me too much money. That's why you want to do this. Or, you know, you just don't want to save your pet. You have the money and you won't save your pet. Those are two really delicate conversations that are happening every day in vet practices. I think because people don't feel heard. The veterinarian doesn't feel heard. I'm not trying to jack up your bill. I'm trying to tell you what the options are. And the pet owner doesn't feel heard. I want to know what's going to make my pet more comfortable. And is it an, a quality of life or an extension of life? And I separate those two out because some people will extend their animal's life and it won't necessarily be comfortable. And how do you have that conversation? So I think you're spot on when you say, you know, I really want to explain to you why if we do labs now, this might help you have a better idea of the next step.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I see a lot of our job is providing peace of mind. And um, I think... Uh, it's really checking our egos at the door and validating the client's concerns. you know if if we're having a conversation with a client and um, they give some pushback, I don't think the answer is to attack them as much as to validate their concerns and ask the questions that um, that help them express what their concerns might be. And, you know, if it's, if it's truly money, then having options to help from that standpoint, care credit, pet health insurance, et cetera. And if it's, um, well, I can't really take care of my pet because I can't give an injection for diabetes, then what can we do to help from that standpoint? We need to be better listeners and less talkers. I, I think there was a survey in human healthcare that the average doctor interrupts their clients somewhere between 11 and 18 seconds after a client starts to speak. And there's the other side of the coin that says leaders are listeners. And so if you really want to lead the client into the delivery of healthcare, Listen to what they have to say. You know, it's support, so funny. You Go ahead. Sorry. Su- support what their concerns are and then work with them in and, and, and understanding what the, um, what the treatment plan should be. It,
0: it's funny you say that because in my practice, when people are having a disagreement, I always say you want to be first listener. You don't want to be first talker. You want to be first listener. And when you're listening, listen for common ground. Listen to where you can find something that, yeah, I agree with you. That's a lot of money. Yeah, I agree with you. This is not the kind of outcome we wanted or the kind of trajectory. And I loved when you said, you know, talk about care credit, talk about insurance. And that talk has to be when they bring in that little puppy, or hopefully they come in to see you before they buy that little puppy. So you can talk to them about all the things that may come if they buy an Irish setter. Do you know what that commitment is? And most people don't um, have that commitment. And then there are, you know, small studies about um, the designer dogs that that might point to that they have a lower incident of something than the two dogs that are bred together. However, they didn't do a broad scale study of the other things that are really bad that come from, you know, putting designer dogs together. So I think that talking to your veterinarian, asking them what they see, uh, being open to that is absolutely, you know, in my opinion, if if you're Buying from a breeder, ask the breeder. If you're buying from a veterinarian, ask the veterinarian. I like when breeders and veterinarians can talk to each other. I have to raise my hand. That sometimes is a, a, a relationship fraught with uh, ego. <laughs> And I'm working on the breeder side, Peter, and you can work on the veterinarian side, uh, because this is a working, you know, this is a working relationship. And I think that's what we've talked about here today, which is so phenomenal. I hope you'll come back, Peter, because I think that there are so many things that you talked about at the end, you know, having your ego, both as a pet owner and as a veterinarian and as the staff. Uh, Be in the right place so that you're open for information. It doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means you're open for information. You're open for learning um, and you're open. You understand that the other party is open to hear what you have to say too. So that's why I say, be the first listener, because then, you know, they know that you've listened to them. You're going to reflect back what you said to them, what they said to you. So they know you heard them. That's never done either, right? How many times in a vet's office does the vet say to you, do you understand what I said?
1: Yeah, not enough, I I have a picture that I use in one of my talks. um, That is uh, the slide essentially says confused clients don't say yes. Yeah. So our role is to not speak in ologies and OMAs, but to speak at a level that pet owners can understand. And so when I talk about an anterior cruciate ligament tear, I need to talk to them as a football player, basketball player, show a model, explain where it is, and not use terminology that they may not understand, but to use terminology that if it's a third grade level, let's get down to third grade. And if they're a doctor use a fourth grade level, because even though they're an MD or a nurse, it doesn't mean that they are a veterinarian and
0: but. they're listening with emotion. They only hear about one third of what you said because you've just saved their dog's life or diagnosed their dog with an illness, and that is taking up the entire amygdala um, so you're absolutely right uh, it It's interesting because when you said that it it took me back to when you know someone was was talking to me about so many things, and I stopped them, and I said, listen, I can't even hear you now. Can I talk to you in an hour? I said, because I can't even, and that's what clients have to do. If they are in overwhelm, they have to feel that they can say to their veterinary team, okay, so you give me a lot of information right now. Um, I need to think about it, and then when I talk to veterinarians where their clients are unloading on them, and really, well, maybe we'll talk about that next time, how clients can sometimes be really out of control. Um, no, No, never. Uh, But I always say to veterinarians, why do you feel you have to answer them right right then and there? And they go, well, because. I said, you don't. I said, just hold a safe space for them. You've just given them information or they've just experienced something that put them totally in the wrong spot in their brain cells. I said, give them a minute. I said, don't add fuel. Listen to them say, you know, you give me a lot to think about and I'm so appreciative that you have because I haven't heard this before and I need to hear things like this. And can we talk on Wednesday? But you know what happens, Peter? They don't call on Wednesday
1: and then here's my, here's, here's my answer to that. Okay. Mm -hmm. As a consultant, if I have a case manager and I just came out of a room with a kidney failure and the client absorbed 20% of the discussion, it's my responsibility to follow up with an email, with a link to something about kidney failure and a phone call
0: videos or something, right?
1: Right and maybe give them a handout, send them an email with an attachment, and then give them a call potentially later in the day if it's a critical situation or at least the next day with a simple question that says, Mrs. Hamilton, I know yesterday was probably a shocker, but I just wanna make sure now that you've had a chance to think about it that somebody followed up with you and made sure your questions were answered. So what are your lingering concerns after yesterday's visit?
0: Yep. And I can tell you that that doesn't often happen. And in fact, I've had in schools, veteran schools that I've gone to speak to on how to communicate with clients, they say, listen, we tell them in the office, then the vet tech tells them before they leave, we hand them a handout, why can't they understand? And I said, because you have just told them a member of their family is very ill, or you've just told them a member of their family has to have surgery. And so that's right there, that's right there. And the rest of it is all icing that they can't really even see or taste or feel. And Peter, you put it perfectly. Uh, you, you've stolen all my, my uh, class notes. So I'm, I'm really glad you have, because this is everything that makes it important why pets matter. They matter to the veterinarian because they wanna get the information out, but they have to get it out in a way that it can be absorbed by the client. And the client needs to raise their hand and say, you know, Dr. Weinstein, I am on informational overload. And, you know, is there a time when I can sit down with you or one of your team members and go over this again? I know you gave me seven sheets of paper with all sorts of information on it, and I'm going to go home and read it. Um, and maybe I won't because I'm so upset and depressed. But that doesn't stop the staff from calling and saying, you know, Mrs. Hamilton, have you read the seven pages? I haven't. Don't make them feel bad. Say, well, would it help if I helped you read them? Would it help if I sent you a video to just start something? Because I know how emotional this is. This is where veterinary medicine, I think, is it has to be a little bit different than human medicine because their patients can't talk. And so here I am as the pet owner trying to do what's best for my animal. And here you are, the veterinarian trying to do what's best for my animal. And my animal is sort of sitting there going, what's going on? What's going on? You know, they have no idea. And so we're making decisions on their life that that they're living their life every day.
1: Well, I think veterinarians tend to uh, feed their clients with a fire hose and they really need to do drip irrigation. If you wanna grow (laughs) seeds, you don't use a fire hose, you use drip irrigation and a little fertilizer. And a little bit of water, and you'll be just fine. But you know, if if I start to feed a fire hose of information to uh, Mrs. Hamilton, Mrs. Hamilton is going to get wet, but she's not going to get any water. Right, she'll and still be, she'll still be thirsty.
0: And then that goes back to when they get the dog or even before they get the dog, start that drip irrigation. This is what we find when you buy a Labradoodle. This is what we find when you buy a Pekingese. This is what we find. So these are the things, love the dogs, think the dogs are great. You know, have we had issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, however, as partners, we're gonna make sure we keep fluffy in your life as long as possible. Um, you know, it. you can't guarantee anything as a veterinarian or as a breeder or as a pet owner. Um, however, having that conversation conversation that has everybody collaborate I think that's the takeaway for everyone today is you have to have that collaborative conversation with your veterinarian and you really have to raise your hand both as a veterinarian to say I'd really like to have a deeper conversation with you is that is that something you'd like to do because as we know the generations have shifted so some people like quick and easy 15 minutes in and out Um, and some people do like you know the war and peace model of information And really the veterinarian is in a position to possibly um, provide that in not an um, overloaded way, You know that they have to do so much. There's so much on the internet. There's so many things that they could put somebody in their office to watch and say, hey, this looks good. Why don't we see if we can share it? And that's the other thing. Let's not have an ego, let's share, let's collaborate. Because if you make a great video on kidney, i'm I'm going to put that up. And if they go to you because you seem to be smarter about kidneys than I am, that, that's okay. That doesn't mean that they're going to drive cross town after the kidneys are done. It might. But you know, that's that's a whole nother discussion as well, looking at the gla- glasses half full instead of half empty.
1: yeah, I, I really wish clients would resource veterinarians, and I wish veterinarians would be amenable to being the source for pet care from womb to tomb. So even before they get their pet to resource a veterinarian, and they don't have to be an expert in Irish Setters. I'm not sure there's an expert in Irish Setters out there because like it just doesn't happen. But um, at least talk to a veterinarian about, here's your family with four kids under the age of eight, and you want to get an Irish Setter, now you have eight kids under the age of eight, and um you don't have time because you're running them around to all of these sports and Irish setters need exercise, need their brain stimulated, maybe not a good fit. All right. Or the individual who says, Well, I really want a dog that's low maintenance and really isn't going to cost me a lot. And I love English Bulldogs. It's like, okay, not in the oxymor- same sentence. <laughs> yeah, that's an oxymoron. Yeah. So it's it's sometimes we end up with decision making at the pet owner side that doesn't understand or take into consideration lifestyle, cost of care, etc., and they haven't sought answers to those questions because they happen to walk by the pet store in the mall and fell in love with some puppy. Spent $2,000 for a mixed breed of seven different breeds, the Heinz 57, $2,000 mix. And now they've got veterinary bills on top of it. So it's really, this is, goes back to a much more global education model that the veterinary profession has not been strong in, in terms of educating pet owners, that we're part of the entire treatment plan um, from the time, even before you get the pet, to the time that you may end up losing the pet.
0: No, absolutely. And I don't think it means that we're bad-mouthing a breed of dogs. It's that it's awareness. If you're going to buy a bulldog, know what you have to do before you buy that bulldog so that you can keep them healthy and happy. I mean, if you live in North Carolina in July and August with the humidity, they're not going outside. It's just not happening because it'll be very hard for them to breathe. However, if you live somewhere where there's enough moisture in the air and coolness in the air, they might be a great breed, but then you might have things in their foals that might come up. So these are the kind of things that veterinarians can help in a non-judgmental way. Um, I now have a vet who we're speaking to who wants to ban all brachiocephalic dogs. And I'm like, okay, did you ever think about talking to the breeders of brachiocephalic dogs to see how they are combating things or what they're doing that's making it worse and having a conversation? And again, that comes back to what your premise was, Peter, which is veterinarians have to help educate their clients, help educate their teams, make it a working relationship uh, so that when you get a dog, hopefully before you get the dog, you know what you're taking on. Um, But if you get a dog, it's thought because it wasn't like the one in the movie who really behaved well. Um, You help, you have the resources there for your client to either help it make, make a success of this breed or help it put the dog in a place where the dog will thrive, whether it's with them, whether it's in daycare, whether it's with someone else, but, and no shame and blame. I I often say, you know, please don't shame and blame people. You know, you, you, it doesn't work and it doesn't help the dog. So you need to either make it easier for the person to live with the dog or have the dog live with someone who understands the persnickety of a Rhodesian Ridgeback, not a dog for everyone.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, again, it goes back to education, goes back to communication and it goes back to the fact that if we all look at this in a collaborative fashion, where your clients are a team member and not an adversary, and your colleagues are not adversaries, but colleagues, maybe we can keep put Deborah Hamilton out of business. I, I would love we,
0: to be out of business. Oh, my God, that would make me so happy.
1: Right. and And I think some of the things we talked about can help deal with some of these issues and and, um, probably would validate what Deborah Hamilton has been trying to say for a number of years as well.
0: Yeah, and what Peter Weinstein said all in this podcast, which is going to go viral, I'm sure. Peter, thank you so much. Your information, your, your desire to make the veterinarian practice um, what it can be is is so uplifting for me, uh, and I know it's uplifting for my listeners, because that's really what they want. They just want to be able to communicate in a way that helps everyone understand each other. So I'm so grateful you were here.
1: Thank you, Deborah. Thanks for the opportunity and and uh, to all of the pet owners that are out there. Um, Be patient with your veterinarians. We are a living, breathing organism as well. And and we're trying to change to meet your needs and to all my colleagues who might listen to this, um, you know, change is a good thing. Change will get us uh, further faster than status quo.
0: What do they say? The only constant is change. So being able to change and, and collaborate with people to make sure it's change for the better for everyone is fabulous. Peter, thank you so much. This is Deborah Hamilton. Why do pets matter? So glad you were here. And until next time, kiss your pet for me. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.